Merry Christmas and welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure, if I can even get the right tagline out there. Today we're going to have fun with a little bit of a conversation looking at how different Bible characters react to baby Jesus. Now we're not going to be able to look at every character that has ever been connected to any prophecy or anything of the sort, but we are going to look at the Gospels of Luke and Matthew and examine the figures that really do react to baby Jesus, and you might be surprised who's there and who's not. So join in on our conversations and it's your thoughts, questions, and comments. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there is one other with me here in the studio today. Pastor Anthony Alegria. All right. Well, Anthony, let's jump right into this. So we're going to go through the Gospels. Our order is not particularly chronological or according to either the Gospels, but it's generally chronological and generally following Matthew and kind of popping back and forth between Matthew and Luke. So I don't want anybody to get all upset about the order we do these. And let's start by talking about the angel that appears to Joseph. And again, we don't always find names associated with the angel. Sometimes there's the name Gabriel that's there, but not always. And there's even a distinction to be made between Gabriel, the angels, and then the heavenly host, which you hear happening. And we'll talk about all that as we go. We're even going to look at some religious leaders who we don't always think of as interacting with baby Jesus, but they clearly do. So let's start with this angel and Joseph. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 25 reads as follows. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so Anthony, the purpose of our conversation today is really look at how different characters have reacted to the birth of Jesus. Here in Matthew 1, we do find an angel. And now, just throwing out some rhetorical questions out there, um, but Anthony can feel free to answer them. (laughs) Do angels have free will? You know, that's a question that a lot of people have. Are they really agents of will, or are they just bringing a message like the word means? Um, that is not a question I can answer, though. I will say it's not made very explicitly clear that angels do have free will. Yeah, it's, there's always this sentiment that they, I mean, they're a messenger. If, if you send a letter to someone, does the post office have much will in doing that? The answer is no, but at the same time, they still do. I mean, there's times where things don't get delivered or they get delayed or something like that. So... Technically, the answer really should kind of be no, but at the same time, we do find things like in the book of Job where one of these figures is walking around and he falls and decides to do wickedness, and we find that with Satan, the accuser, when he decides to do something he shouldn't do. But this angel here, he's pretty stern, um, pretty forward, but at the same time also kind of comforting. What are your thoughts on this angel, Anthony? Do you, what do you think when you see him? Um. <clears throat> well, I just think he's uh, an instrument of God, and that's about it. That's I don't about know it. that his reaction is going to be um, any different than I might expect God's reaction to be, which is basically orchestrating the birth of Christ. Uh, God is working in a lot of things in the world to prepare the world for God, for him to be born, for himself to be born, for Jesus Christ to be with us. And so the angel, to me, just seems to be an extension of that. I will say, um, just because I was looking through uh, our notes today, and I don't see an explicit spot for 
Joseph's reaction. Can we talk about Joseph's reaction? Joseph's reaction is in there. Okay, we're going to talk about We're going to get to him. Yeah, Joseph is there. We won't jump ahead. Yeah, let's not jump ahead. Let's get to this next angel that comes to talk with Mary. And there's a huge contrast, actually, between this angel that talks with Joseph and the one that comes to Mary. Now, Mary is described a little differently. So let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered by what sort of greeting that there might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And your name, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and you will call He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here we find this right now. And one of the things which is fascinating here is the angel that we get coming to to Mary does come with a, a more excitable greeting. And this is actually titled, as the Angel Gabriel. So we do get a name for this angel here. But he opens up saying, Greetings, O favored one. Doesn't that sound a lot more chipper, a lot more excited than the one that comes to Joseph? Oh, definitely, yeah. And I actually, um, that first line is pretty interesting to call her the favored one and say that the Lord is with her. Yeah, he's definitely a lot more excited than the one that comes to Joseph in the dream. So Mary's got this just appearing to her. And he's really excited. He's got some character. And Mary's response to this as well, again, we, we typically find that interaction where don't be afraid and things of that nature. But Mary really does take a lot of this stuff and cherish it in her heart, which, of course, there's the famous line out of the Luke text where we find that, which people tend to read on, on Christmas morning. And we'll be there in a minute. But it's kind of fascinating how this angel, this messenger, is so excited to see Mary. All right, let's go on to Joseph now. I know you wanted to talk about Joseph, so why don't you go ahead and read our our text, and we'll see what goes on with Joseph here. Anthony? This is why you don't accidentally volunteer for things. So, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Okay, so this is one of the things which is fascinating. So the time frame of Mary and Joseph being married and the birth of Jesus is something which needs a little bit of historical context. So in the first century, if you are a young Jewish couple, um, theoretically what's going to happen is there's going to be a ceremony that's kind of like a wedding that's more of a betrothal, official engagement ceremony. Does that sound pretty fair to say, Anthony? where you've got a formal setting where you've got people coming. It's a formal, the two of you are getting married. But then before you actually become husband and wife, you're going to wait about a year. And then you'll have a second ceremony where you really become husband and wife. So does that sound like a simple down-to-earth explanation of this, what it means to be betrothed as opposed to be married? Yeah, I would say so. Okay, so the text says, and this is out of Matthew, what Anthony just read. He's in um, the Matthew text. What we find happening really is Mary and Joseph, at the time that Jesus is conceived, it is before the full wedding, apparently, but also after that betrothal moment. But since Joseph is encouraged to go ahead and take her as his wife, and the scriptures go so far to um, emphasize that he has no marital relations with her until after the son is born, we could presume that the full ceremony has happened in between the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. Does that sound pretty fair to say, Anthony? 
Does that kind of match up? Yeah, I think so. Again, we don't have exact dates. Nobody over there in archaeological evidence has pulled up a nice little wedding planner of Mary and Joseph and said, well, this is what happened. These were the guests invited. These are the dates. No, Nobody's found that. So, again, this is just pure speculation. But based on the scripture, that's what we find. But nonetheless, Joseph, who we don't hear a lot about in the Gospels, his reaction to this um, is he does it. He's pretty straightforward. He doesn't spend a lot of time questioning it. He doesn't get mad, doesn't get sad. You don't really see a lot of joy either, but he's, he, he is willing to follow the instructions that God has given to him well, at he, a bare he minimum. He takes the whole situation extraordinarily wisely. Yeah. And I think in some sense too, um, Joseph's response is very similar to maybe someone's response like Nicodemus to Jesus. So at first, this whole Jesus thing seems like it might be a little illegitimate. And I'm just going to be honest. If I was betrothed to a woman and she turned out to be pregnant, the first thing I would assume is not that she was, uh, that the Holy Spirit had conceived a child in her. Yeah, that would not be. Yeah, that's not That's not one. my first assumption. My first right. assumption is some sort of illegitimate uh, relationship taking place outside yeah. of myself. And so the way Joseph handles it, though, is very, very wise and graceful. And that's some of the way, like someone like the Pharisee Nicodemus handles Jesus very similarly. He sees Jesus and he's like, hmm, I don't know this whole son of God thing. I don't know about all this stuff, but I know he's doing a lot of good things. And so I'm going to give this time and see about it. And so later on, when God reveals more to Joseph, Joseph's totally uh, ready to go. He's committed, so, all that oh, stuff. Okay. I, Nicodemus, in a yeah. very similar way, throughout the course of the gospel, God reveals more and more to Nicodemus. And at, by the end of it, Nicodemus is one of the people who uh, takes the time to actually bury Jesus, which, I mean, at that point, that's a pretty honorable thing to do. But also, there were a lot of his followers that were unwilling to for fear of the Jews. So I think kind of what you're saying is here is Joseph and Nicodemus, they both have an instinct that says, I'm going to be graceful before I am vicious. <laughs> uh, my instinct is to be graceful first. Yeah, and um, that is a very, really a holy and wise thing. Um, and it's hard in all reality, if we are just going to be honest with ourselves, to accept that the presence of God is something that's very different and something that we might not expect. And honestly, it's something that human nature wants to reject. Yeah. But Joseph and, and people like Nicodemus model very well how to, how to handle that well and gracefully and in such a way where you might hear God in the end and turn to him. Yeah. And again, the whole purpose of this conversation is for us ourselves here, where we're at in the modern day and age, to examine our own hearts and say, well, how do we react to, to baby Jesus? Joseph has this instinct which says, I'm going to first and foremost be graceful. Well, let's go to Mary next. And this is from Luke chapter 2, verse 19. And I know there's a lot more you can read with Mary. You can read her song of praise she gives and everything. But we're just going to look at this moment where right after Jesus is born, the shepherds have come. Luke 2.19 says, But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Now again, so many times we see when it comes to Mary and Joseph, different portrayals of them are, are put out there. Some really like to add a lot more details. There you find um, movies and things out there like Mary, which kind of give you a full story, which is, again, as long as it's consistent with the story of the scripture, I'm totally fine with that. But at the same time, there is a lot of mystery around Mary and Joseph. Is that still kind of fair to say, Anthony? We we don't know everything about their lives? Yeah, I mean, 
we don't really <laughs> it's, know. It's really like, extraordinary how little we know. It about is. Mary it's and really Joseph. extraordinary how little we know about Mary and Joseph, and it is mysterious why God chooses this young couple. Um, but at the same time, it's beautiful that He chooses them, and wonderful things happen out. And we do see their character come out brilliantly. When earlier I was saying joy, uh, Joseph doesn't seem to have a lot of overwhelming joy, I'm not meaning that to try to disparage him in any way. I'm just stating what we find about it. He's more than willing to respond honorably. He has grace and mercy in his heart, so he has a lot of wonderful things going on. And Mary, she as well has a lot of grace and mercy in her heart. She doesn't really, well, she doesn't kind of go crazy like a lot of times people do whenever an angel comes to them. People have crazy reactions. Messengers happen from God. Sometimes people laugh at it almost to mock in response. Sometimes people don't believe it. Uh, but Mary, she's willing to believe. Yeah, I think a very common human response to a situation like this is honestly almost in fear yeah. because of just the magnitude of what it really means. I mean, think about it. You're the stepfather to God. Yeah, That's the job that you're about that you just got. I, mean, well, I, don't, I don't know if I would say stepfather because that usually implies that you're right. I'm just like saying a not biological father. Yeah, you're I, the, I don't want to say it in a weird way. The earth, you know the human father, yeah. earthly. Yeah, you're the earthly father of. You're going to be the earthly father of God. That's yeah. a pretty huge. I mean, think about how scared people react whenever they find out they're going to have a, a regular human baby, and now you're going to be the father of the savior of the world. Like yeah. that's a huge responsibility. Yeah. And so, but then you know later on the baby gets born, then you're going to be full of joy. But here we can see uh, how early on Mary takes on that same joy. Yeah, so let's talk to some more obscure ones that people don't always think of when talking about baby Jesus. Like we put out our nativity scenes, we put them in the yard, you know, things like that happen. We have our churches decorated with them. But there's a lot more characters that actually interact with baby Jesus than just the ones that we would typically see there in a nativity scene. Uh, the next one I want us to talk about is actually John the Baptist. And talk about having a early meeting. I know people who say, well, I met you when I was two days old, or I met you in the nursery at so-and-so Church of the Nazarene. John the Baptist and Jesus meet, and they have a clear recorded meeting for all time that they met before they were born. They met in the womb. <laughs> um, and let's go to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 41, where it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, so Elizabeth, she comes to visit her, or Mary comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and Luke 1.41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. So John's reaction to this, John's, I guess you could say, prenatal reaction to the Christ child. And again, he is, he is also one that is set apart for a purpose of God. Obviously, he's not the Messiah. He's not God's begotten son. But he leaps for joy, um, leaping in the womb. What do you think about that, Anthony? This sort of <laughs> ordained moment they have together where... There is something providential about this. I was about to say, uh, I think this moment depicts more than it depicts anything else. Not saying this is the, the, not saying that this moment depicts God's providence better than anything else. But this moment, more than anything else, is going to be depicting um, just how God is orchestrating and planning these events for uh, the birth of Christ. Yeah, think about so many times in life we. We look at the symbolism of things around us, and we live in a day and age where there's so much media. There's television, there's movies, there's books and novels to read, and we've kind of got our lives set up where we're looking for typical storylines, where there's foreshadowing, where there's good writing. You know, we have all our different archetypes, and occasionally in life you see something that plays out like a really well-written story, 
Um, most of life plays out like a really bad written story. Um, sometimes, sometimes. Pretty boring. So, yeah, a lot of things get boring. Like nobody wants to hear about me losing my teeth this morning or something simple and mundane like that. But imagine actually being there with Elizabeth and Mary and seeing these children in the womb and one leaps upon hearing the other. And again, having the account of how Elizabeth has come to be pregnant and also how Mary has come to be pregnant. Both of them have this sort of angelic connection and one of them's told that there's going to be a Messiah. The other's told he's going to be a prophet. And you actually see this jumping for joy there in the womb. You know, it's just an amazing symbolism. And so often, again, we're so oversaturated with media. I feel like when we read something like this, we don't find how profound this is. But this is a moment in life where if you were standing there, you would know it. You know what I mean? You 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 would have that moment saying, this this is really it. What do you think? Am I crazy for kind of going there? Uh, No, I mean, and I imagine uh, Elizabeth has some ideas of what was going on <laughs> at the well, moment. Yeah, let, let's jump right to Elizabeth then, because Elizabeth... She, she comes here as well. Um, in Luke 41, and this is kind of the second side of that, it says, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Now, you got to remember, Elizabeth, she has kind of a miracle child in her as well. She's supposedly barren. She's of, of long past um, childbearing years, and she's barren and older. And now she's got this child coming to her. Um, she has a miracle going on as well. And she's giving praise to God for that. But also, now that Jesus is here, all that kind of takes a back seat. It's it's. It's no longer so important that she just looks at what's going on in her own life, but she's looking to the whole world and kind of throughout time. It's kind of amazing to see her reaction to this as well. Any thoughts, Anthony, before we move on to the next one? It really certainly is. Um, something that I find fascinating in this is the really just importance and the exalting that we see of Mary as being the mother of God. I yeah. think that's something that we try to stray away from yeah. as Protestants. But it seems pretty clear in the scripture that it's not only that um, God just chose a random woman, but he chose a very, very great and righteous woman who he would exalt by al- by allowing to participate in his birth, Yeah. in you know God's birth. And so like we see here in the scriptures where... <clears throat> Uh, John the Baptist as an infant or not even an infant but in the womb reacts to Mary's voice and here Elizabeth says why is it that the mother of my Lord comes to me there's something that is very interesting about the way that um, Mary's being treated here also as the mother of God and uh, I suppose you know the least the least shall be the greatest Uh, bringing the Lord into the world doesn't exactly always seem like the biggest treasure especially in our culture we pretend like motherhood isn't really valuable but it's extraordinarily valuable and i think that's something that's depicted here also yeah we we often forget that and this is something that's really gone wrong in our culture is we have tried to create this myth where every human being is completely identical and we somehow think that that is good um when quite clearly god's been telling us since the very beginning 
He created man and woman in his image, and they are different. And that's perfectly fine. Both of them are created in the image of God. Both of them are fully um, ordained by God. There's a, a masculine image and there's a feminine image, and it's totally fine for them to be different because God values them and they are essential to one another. It's not like God said one is really better than the other and humanity can survive with just one of the two. Like humanity literally needs both of them. And we in the modern day and age, our, our culture, and sadly enough, there are actors in the church who have propagated this. We haven't wanted to be on the, on the side where we are really articulating what these things look like until after we've kind of lost the cultural high ground. Um, and now we just don't talk about it at all. But um, we don't have good images of what a proper feminine role model looks like or a proper masculine, you know, being a man is a real thing, being a strong, righteous woman is a real thing. And women don't have to be made into men in order to be, you know, godly. And, and I will say there are many women in the Bible that serve as beautiful, strong, feminine figures and role models. Yeah. And there's even a few men that do that as well. <laughs> Oftentimes the, the archetypal heroes we get in the, the Bible are not really... Um, they're, they're definitely heroes, but um, there's also a lot of character flaws. Um, and we find that with just universally across the thing. That's why we needed a Savior. That's the whole point. Um, if, if Moses was Jesus, then we wouldn't have needed Jesus. So let's talk about the angel and the heavenly host and the shepherds a bit right before they come to see Jesus. So we're getting closer to the birth of Christ right now, that integral moment. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, Do not be afraid. For, see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in cloths. So what we find here is the angel coming to the shepherd saying, you'll find the sign. It will be a child wrapped in clothes. He'll be swaddled in a manger. You'll find him. And... The angel that is here, and again, we're going to make a distinction between this angel and the heavenly host, is bringing a joyful news. Would you not say? I mean, literally, we, we understand the word gospel to mean good news coming from the Greek euangelion, which is where we get evangelism. Is this not the ultimate good news? I mean, this word historically has been used to announce, you know, the birth of a child or wedding or something like that. Here we have an angel, a messenger of God coming to shepherds to announce the birth of this little Savior. What do you think about this, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be awesome. Um, and I think whenever you hear in the city of David and the anointed one of God, and he is going to be your Savior and your Lord, especially to a Jew, all these things are massive, yep. massive deals. This is no small thing. I mean, I honestly don't even know... Uh, an American modern-day equivalent to such statements. Well, but... to to kind of translate this a little bit differently, this angel is saying, I am bringing you the gospel. And here it is. So many times we think of the gospel being the a, a piece of the gospel. We don't look at the, the gospels as a holistic picture, but the gospel really begins with the birth of Christ. And this angel comes along saying, I am bringing you the gospel of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. That's the gospel. That, that is the beginning of the gospel, and this is the good news that we need to hear. It's just fascinating to hear that. 
Um, and then you get the heavenly host who react a little bit differently. Um, so, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. And just making a little bit of a distinction there, we're only doing this because this is what the scripture says. Now, is the heavenly host made up of other angels and messengers? I don't know. Anthony, do you know the answer to that question? Do you know who makes up the heavenly host? I haven't been to heaven yet, so yeah. can't answer that. Um, and you find other depictions <laughs> who will kind of portray an angel, sort of how we typically portray angels, and then you find cherubs being used in the heavenly host, which there's a biblical case to be made for, for that. Um, the, uh, the existence of cherubs, I should say. Just like you can look to something like the book of Zechariah and you'll find um, the angel not being depicted like we think of with wings and things like that. And in white clothes, just we don't get really any image of what the angel looks like. But it's contrasted by other heavenly figures which do have those wings and look like women with wings wearing kind of that typical angel look. Um but the fact that they're specified in the angels not would suggest the angel looks differently. So we have no idea what any of these figures look like and no idea who is specified in heavenly hosts. That, that's basically what I'm saying. Is that yeah, fair? And I mean, there are many, many yeah. depictions. There's a huge variety of uh, angelic figures. And I mean, that just goes to show um, God's yeah, ability to work through other things. Those are his servants. They're not God. Right. And that's something we should remember. Uh, it's okay for there to be different depictions of them and for them to be – uh, a variety because yeah, as, they're not God. Right. So. As, as sparingly small as our scriptures talk about such things, we still get a wide variety of them. We get things like sons of God, daughters. It, you get all sorts of crazy stuff that's out there. And it it's in our scripture, so it's not crazy for the sense that it's irrational. It's When I say crazy, I mean it's something we can't normally relate to. We don't really have all the answers. There's just a whole lot of mystery around it. Well, beings with four faces and six wings aren't exactly very relatable. Yeah, um, yeah, strange. Strange things indeed. Um, So let's go on to talk a little bit more about some other surprising figures who are there. Some religious leaders. Actually, let's do the shepherds first real quick, and we'll, we'll be done with that scene and move along. So the shepherds there, they, in Luke 2, chapter or chapter 2, verse 15 through 18, it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a manger. And when they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. What I find fascinating about this is part of the shepherds' reaction is to go on their own little missionary journeys. They take the good news. They heard good news from an angel. They heard the heavenly host. They went and saw Mary and Joseph and Baby Jesus. And what happens to them is they got to go on a little missionary journey and tell people what they heard. Isn't that kind of cool? Well, I definitely, to me, the image more of a pilgrimage comes to mind. I totally get what you're saying, though, um, because they are spreading uh, the proclamation that the angels made. But also, you know, they're going to see uh, what the Lord desires for them to yep. see. Well, that, I think that's a very yeah. beautiful thing. Well, it's almost like the pilgrimage happens and then the missionary journeys. And that might be how it goes down in real life. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. That maybe. Yeah. That's a great reaction to have to um, Christ. All right. So let's talk about some really people we don't always think of being there. So let's talk about the religious leaders that are there at Jesus's birth and when he's a small child. Um, because these are also people we don't depict in the typical nativity when we're painting out our figures, but they're totally there. And again, our metric for today is people who the scripture tell us were clearly there. 
Um, like a lot of times people have a play with an innkeeper or something like that. You don't really get much there with that scripturally. But we do find Jesus being circumcised and presented in the temple, and there are characters here who we can talk about. So it says, After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. And he was called Jesus, and the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay, so what we know from this um, is the, the temple empty, Anthony, when they go to give this presentation, or there's some priests and people there to help with this. No, I mean, there's definitely people. Um, and Jesus, Jesus doesn't circumcise himself. That's all I'm going to say about this. So there's clearly some others who are there involved in this. And I mean, one might say it was their parents. I think that's pretty unlikely. Uh, they had people who were trained specifically to do yeah, such the, things yeah, and in practices, tradition. and it would have been yeah. much safer to trust them to that sort of thing. And what we find fascinating about this is so many times Jesus is at odds with the religious authorities of the day. But right now, they are treating him just like they would every other Jewish boy. Every other Jewish child, um, we, we find they, they have their rituals and things. They are fully willing to bring Jesus in to the Jewish tradition. Which the reason why I want us to talk about this is it's such a contrast from where we find the religious leaders at the crucifixion scene. Because they're really the ones stoking the crowds. They're going to Rome saying, you know... You're not a friend of Caesar if you let this guy be here. But when Jesus is born, they're fully wet, ready to pull him in. They're willing to let Jesus come into the Jewish circles. And that's kind of fascinating to me that you do see them embracing him as a child. Because, again, they're not suspecting anything, really. Or maybe they are. Who knows? We don't find out from that. But they're more than happy to just go through the normal traditions and things like that. It's a little bit more mundane at this point. I get that it's not a novel moment where you've had things like Lazarus raised from the dead, you've had children healed, you've had demons being cast out and blinding and all that stuff. I get that it's just a child at this point, though there's also been the angelic connection, all this miracle stuff happening beforehand, but still. Anthony? Let's just uh, pretend that the religious leaders had heard about all these things which have happened, and they believed it. Yeah. Um, I think it's very easy for us as you know, a member of the human race to uh, be very excited about the idea of having a savior. But when we see what a real savior looks like, a lot of times it's easy for people to turn away from that. Yeah. Uh, and I think we can see that here in this also. A lot of people are very excited about the birth of Jesus and people, you know, when they hear the good news, it's like, wow, awesome. There's going to be a savior. But the more they learn about what that looks like, you know, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, um, taking your cross and being crucified on it, then salvation doesn't seem nearly as appealing to a lot of people. Yeah. But they don't realize that this is the way of life, the way of life abundant and eternal life. Sure. You know, um, yeah. and so... Salvation is attractive in ideas or theory, but then whenever it comes to practice, a lot of times it's easy to turn away. All right, so let's contrast what we just found out about these religious leaders, which is what happens with Simeon and Anna. So again, I don't know how much they know about Jesus up to that point. The scriptures do not tell us, but what is about to happen in the scriptures, and this is pure chronological order just of the Gospel of Matthew, we find in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 2 that Simeon, 
who's one who watches all this happen. It says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, and a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So what we find happening And Simeon goes on to bless Mary and Joseph, and he says specifically to Mary, he says, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Just imagine being there. Imagine if you're one of the, you're a religious leader in any capacity, even if you're not one who's necessarily on duty that day, you're watching this happen. I don't know if you would think Simeon is a kook, or you would look at it and have conviction in your soul that you realize this is this is it. And it could just depend on you as a person where your relationship with God is when you react to that. But Yeah, I think so. Here's a, a moment where you find kind of Paul's sentiment that it's either all completely crazy or it's all entirely true played out. Because I think that's the only reaction you can have to something like what you see with Simeon. And also there's Anna who has a very similar reaction to this, though we don't get as many details about what she does. And in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 38, it says, And at that moment she came and began to praise God and speak about the child and to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And from that language to all who were looking for the redemption, we can imagine she has her little missionary journey she does too. Um, this prophetess, she sees all this happen, and then she just kind of peels out to the streets and starts to tell people the gospel um, before knowing it's its full capacity. And that's just beautiful to see these reactions we get from Anna and Simeon. Anthony? I think there's something pretty wise there in that uh, a lot of times we think that we have to understand every single little detail to start proclaiming the good news. But even a limited understanding can provide a valuable testimony. Sure, yeah. And it can be useful for other people. Um, and so I think that's a good model that because, again, the, the Gospels show time and time again that even the disciples were not ready or familiar with what this salvation was going to look like, you know. And from this time, everybody's excited about the salvation that's coming. But later on, when they start to find out more about what it's going to look like, there's a little resistance to it throughout. Yeah. And so um, it's okay to be committed to the good news with a limited understanding. And to your, wrong with that. to your point, the disciples flee when Jesus gets crucified. It's the guy who comes in the middle of the night and kind of says, I, I don't really understand this whole being born again thing. I don't really get all of this, but I can see that there's something going on with you. Nicodemus, he kind of returns. I know you, you mentioned him earlier. And um, yeah, we often think that you've got to be one of the 12 or the modern spiritual you know, prayer warrior to be able to go out and preach the gospel. But what it actually tells us is sometimes the religious leaders, sometimes one of, if you're one of the 12, sometimes if you're someone who's been following Jesus since the beginning, you might actually turn away. Sometimes it's the, the guys you don't know much about who come in the middle of the night who their heart actually has a sincere interest in the pursuit of God that they're the ones who are, who are there when it really comes down to it. So we've got two more we want to look at real quick, and most people are familiar with these, so we'll wrap them up quickly. Um, the first is the wise men, and Matthew 2.11 says, On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. They opened their chest, and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
It's fascinating. Jesus isn't born in a palace. God, he's going to the family. He doesn't need all these things, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're there. And if you don't know what they are, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're kind of, they're typical gifts of royalty. Um, they're also gifts that you might give when someone is buried, kind of embalming tools. Um, people would do this in royal settings. So that's kind of fascinating. They definitely come from afar. So they probably wouldn't be there the same night Jesus is born. Uh, the scriptures kind of are easily understandable in that manner. They they take a while to get there. But nonetheless, they do come when he's a child. So I'm fine with people having the wise men there at the nativity, even though we know that's not possible by the confines of time. But the sentiment is correct. They come to see the Christ child. They they want to bring him the gift. So it's, it's wonderful to see that happening. And I mean, if you don't buy the time argument, uh, the scriptures say that they came into the house where they were, yeah. not the um, you know stable. barn, cave, stable, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And Jesus was no longer lying in a manger, yada, yada. I'm yeah. actually, I'm totally fine with the wise men being part of the nativity yeah, too. too. A lot of people make a stink about it. But I mean, the fact of the matter is this is, depicting the world's response in yep. celebration to the birth of Jesus yeah. Christ. And the wise men are definitely part of that. Yeah. Um, I do actually wish that we had a depiction of the evil part of the world's response to Jesus Christ in our nativities. I think that would be interesting. Well, I'm not going to say I wish it because I don't wish for, for evil things to be advanced. But I think I see what you're saying. Is, Just the depiction. I think Just, what you're saying is we should reality. not forget the wickedness. Yeah, and, and I think and you're, because like we we want to ignore the fact that not everyone is excited about Jesus coming, and that should be something that's interesting to us, and that we should remember, and maybe even apply a little bit to ourselves, because a lot of times we want to pretend like, oh yeah, everything about God, we're all about that, and every time God shows us anything, we're going to respond the right way. That is just not true yeah. if you're a human. If you're a human yeah. being, there are going to be times whenever God shows you something, and you're not going that's, to respond yeah. the right way. And yep. I hope that God blesses you that you might turn from that and respond well. Yeah. So sin is naturally desirable. In Herod, the sin in his heart is that in Matthew 2, 16, it says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was furiated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. So again, kind of throws a, a wrench in the time argument for the wise men, but it doesn't really matter in the course of things because the sentiment is correct. And what we see happening here is Matthew, the gospel, it shows us a side that you don't get in Luke. It's showing this side where there is a wicked response to the birth of Christ from the heart of sin. And Herod really steps into this shoe. Uh, if you've seen the Jack Frost Rankin Bass Christmas special, I know we've we've talked about a lot of this stuff, um, the Rankin Bass specials, but the the king in there, um, Kubla Klaus or whatever his name is, he really is like King Herod. So if you want to see some a kind of family oriented portrayal of King Herod, even though what Herod does is obviously not family oriented, he kills all these children. It's extremely wicked. He brings so much death and devastation, but. There is a wicked side that says, I just want to do wickedness because of my own interest. And that's kind of why I brought up the Kubla, Kubla Klaus. His whole family has left him. He's there alone, and he's got all these robotic soldiers, and he's just kind of there. And he has a puppet that tells him that he is loved, and that kind of convinces him that it's all okay. That's really what Herod has done here. He's destroyed family. He's sent it all away. He's sent his own kids away. He's killed his own kids. So he's just vile pits of hell, wicked. But this is his response, and this is the truth. Some people respond 
to the goodness of God with this level of wickedness. And it's terrible. Well, anyways, we'll wrap that up. So we went through a lot of different characters, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. And again, forgive us. This is just a bit more of a casual talk we're having here. So obviously a different angle, different type of speech. And we hope that you enjoy all this. So send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. Again, we are Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. With that, Merry Christmas and God bless us. Thank you.